This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Tom Holland. Not that one. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hooper. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Today, however, we are not reviewing a consort, but rather are interviewing the author and historian Tom Holland. Uh, so we'll be speaking to him about his uh, podcast with Dominic Sandbrook, The Rest of His History, where last year, like us, uh, a couple of years ago, they did a Twitter World Cup of Monarchs poll. Um, in addition to which, he's also done a couple of books about uh, Ethelfled, Lady of the Mercians, and Athelstan. So we're going to be talking to Tom about all the English monarchs, particularly Athelstan, particularly Ethelfled. Come at me, Thomas. I'm ready. I realised we didn't actually say what we were <laughs> going to be doing. <laughs> Let's plunge in. <laughs> uh, so we're very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the author and historian Tom Holland. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself to uh, the listeners in terms of uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Uh, I am historian. My main focus is on um, classical history, particularly Roman history, uh, but also early medieval history. And I've just recently written a book um, with the very, very modest goal of tracing how uh, Christianity has influenced and continues to influence the way that people in the West uh, think and uh, behave and kind of general their general assumptions. Wow. Wow. Cool. Uh, I should also add, I also do a podcast myself called um, The Rest is History, which I suspect you may want to talk about. Uh, yes. <laughs> it had a regal, we, we recently did a re- one on a regal theme. Could you tell us about that podcast first, what, uh, what you usually chat about on that and what it involves? Uh, well, I do it with my friend Dominic Sandbrook, who is a historian of modern Britain and America. So I, I, I'm the ancient, he's the modern um, and we try and cover as broad a range of topics as possible, really. So we've we've um, we've done everything from oh the Neanderthals um, mm. up to nine uh, eleven, mm. um, and we range. I mean, we I guess we we focus on British history, but we also do quite a lot of European history, and we also do global history. So we try and mix and match it. Well, I'm I'm a genuine fan. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And that not just uh, do you cover a broad um, broad range of subjects, but it's within each episode as well. So you can, there's all these sort of, you have a, just one episode is full of different stuff. It's fantastic. Oh, it's absolutely well, it's very, it. very nice of you to say so. I mean, we, we, as I say, we try and make it as very, and also kind of in style and tone and stuff. So some may be much lighter some may be quite serious mm. also i've got to ask because i've just been distracted i've noticed uh, to your left uh, a very impressive looking sword in the background oh yeah yeah well that's a fake that's a, a, a fake one oh, alas a big co- uh, and um I, I should explain my brother who also does a podcast uh, called we have ways um which is based on centered on the second world war my favorite i love it we grew up in um, a village outside Salisbury, and he uh, runs a history festival um, in in this this valley, the Chalk Valley. So the Chalk Valley History Festival. And when he was kicking off, he wanted to have uh, reenactors and living history specialists come as part of the festival. So together we went to this um, enormous fair that was held in a disused air hangar. I can't remember somewhere in Northamptonshire, something like that. Um, and basically it was full of people flogging historically themed clothing and props. Um, so I was kind of being like let loose in the sweetie shop. (laughs) So, um, so I bought a, yeah, I bought a sword. You can maybe see a Roman centurion's helmet on the other side of my shoulder. Um, Norman helmet, all kinds of stuff. 
uh, a top hat uh, if I move. So envious. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> yeah, so so loads of stuff. They the the best thing they had. Um, any of your listeners have ever seen the um, the Tre Riche du Duc de Berry, which was fifteenth um, century illuminated manuscript, um, mm. maybe actually late fourteenth century, I can't remember, but kind of very very dramatic um, style of dressing in medieval France, late medieval France, and they had a complete outfit modelled on that, which mm. I thought was the most recherche but kind of wonderfully <laughs> extravagant yeah. thing. But it was so expensive, I couldn't afford it. And where would I wear it? Where would I ever wear it? <laughs> I'm really hoping that this hangar was themed by uh, by age. So you'd walk through the room. It was. It was. Oh, I thought it'd be random <laughs> sellers. Oh, no. Is... No, it was. I mean, it it wasn't entirely. Um, it wasn't all strictly done, but but there was a kind of general that you began with the Stone Age and you ended up with. Oh man, alive, Graham! <laughs> let's do a little trip away. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Something we're particularly interested in on uh, the rest of uh, the rest of this history podcast that you did uh, recently was a uh, Twitter World Cup of monarchs, where you uh, pitted uh, some of England's best monarchs uh, up against and Britons and Britons, and Britons, yes, and Britons. Um, well, yeah. So, could you tell us? So, who who were the monarchs? How did that all work out? Well, uh, there was some debate. So, it was me, Dominic, and Tracy Borman, um, you know, doyen of of uh, regal history. Um, and she just had a book out when we did it, which was, I think, in November, um, looking at the history of the British monarchy from 1066, however. Mm. So uh, <laughs> so the first thing we had to debate was, um, should we begin at 1066? or And if not, where should we begin? So we decided mm. that we we wouldn't begin at t- 1066. We, you know, we'd include the Anglo-Saxon monarchs. But there was then much debate as to whether Alfred should be included. And both Dominic and Tracy were very keen that he should be. But I said that he wasn't a king of England. And I said that that really the eligible people should be kings, people who had been kings of England or were kings of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. So because otherwise we would have to include Scottish kings and we weren't sufficiently au fait with that to do it. Uh, we'd have, you know, might have to include Offer or whoever. Mm. So as, essentially we decided that the, the first king was Athelstan. So Athelstan was the first king who was eligible for the competition. Then the other great talking point that was a great source of controversy, not just among us, but among um, people on Twitter and people who follow the podcast, was whether Cromwell should be included. Mm. So uh, eventually we decided that he should be. So Alfred was kept out and Cromwell was included. (laughs) And among among the more royally minded the more royalist of our followers, this generated some heat. <laughs> yeah, because I think if Alfred's sort of not included on the technicality that, because it was sort of technically king of the English, but not of England, is well, that right? he's effectively mm. king of Wessex mm. with a chunk of Mercia thrown in. So he's certainly not the king of what becomes England I mean, in a territorial this is, sense. Uh, we, we completely, well, certainly that was my opinion, wasn't it, Graham? I have to outsource my uh, memory to Graham sometimes. <laughs> but on the podcast, it, we, we de- I definitely recall calling Alfred the sufficient and Athelstan being really where it was at. Is that right? That was, that was right in terms of what you thought. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, okay, so you two have disagreements over there. Yeah. Mm. Um, but obviously Oliver Cromwell, you know, if you're in a technicalities of a competition for best monarch, when asked the question, do you want to be king? He said no. You'd think that might be a, a factor against him. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, it could it could very easily have not gone that. But we just thought it would be more funny to, to include mm. Cromwell um, <laughs> and it would spice things up. And we decided that Charles II was going to be in it. So we were hoping that mm. there might be an opportunity for, for Charles II to come up against Cromwell. Oh, and imagine. amazingly... By the luck of the draw, he did. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? <laughs> Fantastic. How did he get on? Cromwell, that is. Uh, Cromwell lost. It was a close match. Close match. I think he lost by 2% or something. Um, and there were some interesting opinions expressed about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the other monarchs. So um, I think Henry V that we've recently looked at again because we um, covered a, did a podcast on his consort, Catherine of Valois, you described as a show pony and the most overrated figure in English history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robust views, firmly <laughs> expressed. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I, I, his, his renown is pretty much entirely due to Shakespeare. Um, he obviously 
didn't <laughs> utter the, the incredible soliloquies that, that Shakespeare puts into his character. Um, Agincourt, of course, was a sensational victory. Um, he, uh, you know, he his his conquests clearly demonstrate a formidable degree of military prowess. But what was it for? It was all for nothing. Um, and I think that you know, his his invasion of France was for the English state an absolute disaster. Do you think he's lucky almost the fact that he dies while he's still relatively young? He didn't actually have to face the consequences of trying to make France and England one kingdom. Yeah, I it's do. Sort of impossible yeah. task. Yeah, I think it was an impossible task, and I think that um, had he lived, he would only have brought more ruin to France and, in the long run, to England. There was no good conclusion to his invasion of France. Mm. Seemed like it was just a done thing at the time. Just sort of, oh, well, I mean, Shakespeare famously says, you know, he advised he, Henry the Fourth on his deathbed advises Prince Hal as he is then to, to busy giddy minds with foreign troubles, i.e., mm. distract. Mm. You know, Henry the Fourth is a usurper. Um, mm. The idea is take people's minds off that by mm. um, focusing on foreign affairs. I think that's basically what's going on. I think that right. um, it's an attempt not just to conquer France, but to establish the legitimacy of the Lancastrian house mm. by demonstrating that God is on Henry's side. And Henry is, a, I mean, a, an austerely, one might almost say ferociously Christian king. I think he absolutely believes that um, he's doing God's will by doing this. Mm. Um, but again, in the, you know, in Shakespeare's play, you have this you know incredible scene on the night before Agincourt, where Henry is what is it? Think not now, O Lord, upon the crime my father committed when he compassed the crown, or something like that. Mm. Some words to that effect. Um, the whole invasion exists in the context of his father's usurpation. I think if you strip away the Shakespeare, you're left with. A pretty uninspiring person. And on the podcast, we've got this, uh, um, well, there's a saying, Henry Mark V, because he's more robotic than person, just does war very effectively. He just does kinging very effectively. Yeah. And it's, ah, oh, feels like Shakespeare had to do the colouring in. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> which he does so brilliantly. And I think, I think, effect, I mean, effectively, Shakespeare colours in the whole of the 15th century. <laughs> So we did. We recently did an episode on um, the princes in the tower, mm. uh, and uh, again and again, it, it was so difficult to to get away from Shakespeare's influence. Mm. Mm. What? Who did it? Oh, Richard the Third, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, no question about that. I mean, he didn't have a massive hunchback, and yeah, didn't kind of cackle evilly and all that kind of thing. But uh, I think otherwise. I mean, Richard, yeah, yeah clearly did it. <laughs> Well, I mean, are there any Ricardians among on the the Ooh. Rex Factor team? No, I don't know. I didn't hate him though. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah. I, thought, I was well, quite. I think he's one of those, like you say, when you when you come at it from the perspective of this is what Shakespeare said about him, and this is what most people mm. think of him as the Shakespeare. Mm. Then actually, the reality yeah. there's a lot more impressive stuff there. Well, Dominic, my co-host, um, uh, kind of brilliantly said that that Richard did do it that he was right to do it mm. <laughs> which, which i thought was a punchy mm. take but you see i disagreed with him. i said he was wrong to do it uh, and the evidence for that is that the house of york ends up being toppled from mm. a position of, of mm. previously in incredible strength and that actually murdering nephews is not the done thing the, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the only out. other well the only you know the only other king notorious for murdering his nephew is john mm. and i think it's not a coincidence that the two kings historically, with the worst reputations, are both of them nephew killers. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just not the done thing to go around murdering your nephews. It really isn't. Mm. I think that's a fair conclusion. I'll take it on board, but I'm unconvinced. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got any nephews yet, but... <laughs> well, your siblings should be warned. <laughs> um, another interesting quote I want to pick out is you described Henry VIII as um, the most famous and consequential of them. Um, England's monarchs, because he sort of feels like in recent years almost been kind of a, a reaction against him, not so much morally, because obviously no one's going to question moral issues with Henry VIII, but he's almost been studied so much that it's almost got to the point where people almost don't want to talk about him, but he is actually such a pivotal figure in English history. So well, people, to... do people not want to talk about him? I mean, it just seems he's, he's a figure whose fame 
uh, and consequentiality actually you know merge very closely uh, his his reign is clearly incredibly consequential and he's just you know the story of his reign is just so compelling and fascinating mm. um and i think that for certainly for english speakers not just in in you know in this country but around the world in a way he serves as the archetype not just of, a, of an english king but of monarchy full stop mm. it's the kind of the wives the beheadings the chicken legs you know all that <laughs> kind of stuff um he he he, he just embodies people's sense of of what a king who rules should be like yeah absolute power ruled tyrannically yeah i think so yeah uh, what was it uh, is it dickens a blot of grease and blood upon the <laughs> the pages of england yeah. that was that I, I mean i completely agree that was one of the reasons for starting rex factor was that uh, we wanted to try and shine a light on the monarchs that perhaps didn't get on the front cover of history books but deserve it just as much as Henry because it's always Henry standing there like Holbein. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? I think that if you're going to be um, a, a king who people who have no interest in history know about, it's all in the branding. <laughs> and Henry's brilliant at his branding, mm. you know, brilliant at it. That's the whole thing about the whole bind. Actually, the other king, yeah. of course, interestingly, who's, who has amazing branding is Charles I. Likewise, mm. everyone knows what Charles I looks like, thanks to, yeah. his, again, his patronage of European geniuses coming over and painting him. Um, huh. it, it does suggest that there's, you know, it's worth, <laughs> it's worth the long-term <laughs> yeah. investment. Mm. <laughs> um, so 16 monarchs are you um, selected for the tournament so how did it all play out then okay so we had um we had 16 qualifiers uh, after heated debate <laughs> we had eight seeds so mm. can you guess the number one seed henry no a tudor though lizzie yeah so elizabeth the first uh, and then henry the eighth oh. then henry the fifth controversially <laughs> from my point of view william the conqueror victoria edward the third Charles II and Elizabeth II. So those were the, the eight seeds. Uh, and we kind of worked them out by the three of us um, gave our, you know, in order, our list mm. of seeds. So that's how it kind of mm. worked out. Uh, the other qualifiers were uh, Edward I, Oliver Cromwell, controversially, mm. Athelstan, Henry II, Richard I, George V, Henry the Seventh and George the Third, but George the Third then got replaced by Knut. because oh. I suddenly realised we'd forgotten Knut, and he was much more deserving than than George the Third, mm. because uh, one won an empire and one lost an empire. Mm. <laughs> That's uh, interesting that Henry the Second didn't come in as in as a seed. It is interesting. I mean, I I, I agree. I I nominated him as a seed. Oh, okay, fine. But uh, Graham will be pleased because I remember you once telling me, Graham, that you don't think Hen Edward III gets the recognition he should. Or did you mean oh, Edward IV? No, Edward III, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he's the one of those, he seems to have such the sort of almost the embodiment of that kind of medieval, even more than mm. Henry V. It seems, somehow seems a bit more fun, even though it's not actually fun in reality. And <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, I agree. It's got a bit more shard of evil about him. Yeah, let the boy win his spurs and all that yeah. kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, and the uh, Order of the Garter, and I, I mean, no, obviously, the fact that Black Death came is a slightly <laughs> darkens, it slightly darkens <laughs> his reign. But uh, and the fact that he kind of ends up uh, in you know in his senile dotage, and it all goes wrong. But I think mm. that uh, I agree. I think that that in a way he kind of embodies the idea of you know Merry England, chivalry, the dash, and the colour mm. of uh, of medieval kingship. Mm. And it's always summer. Always summer, yes. It's always <laughs> summer. It's May specifically. Mm. <laughs> Bright primary yeah. colours. Yeah. You know, ladies in long hats with veils on and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, completely. And it's good because um, we, in our um, first series, we reviewed all the England's uh, monarchs um, from Alfred to uh, Elizabeth II. And we had 18 that got the Rex Factor. And actually, it's a very similar. Oh, really? List, so, what did you have? Can I. So we didn't have, we didn't let the Queen, as in, on the basis of it being too current and 
she has that advantage of literally being the queen. Um, yeah. Then we had William the Fourth was another one that we did have. Oh, yeah, um, good one. We just thought it was an interesting between George the Fourth and Victoria that's short, but did quite a good job. They very much blocked his copybook by supporting slavery. So, mm. um, did you tell me that, Graham? If you, I mean, <laughs> I, I need to do some uh, some research into our own output here, Graham. What are we get, get cancelled? Yeah, uh, you could stick it on Charles because Charles II technically doesn't he give Completely. the royal charter yes, to the uh, African yes, countries? You could say yeah. Charles starts. Oh no, I really like oh, no, those don't two. Ruin him for you. Yeah, uh, Edward the Fourth and Henry. Come, was Henry the First one of yours, or was he not in the? Henry the First isn't no. Yeah, so Edward the Fourth and Henry the First and Alfred, I think, were probably the other ones that we had that you didn't have. But otherwise, all the others. So Henry the Second got our top score yeah. when we reviewed them initially. Terrible sons, though. Yeah, mm. yeah, and, and not the... a great record with his Archbishop of Canterbury. It has to be said. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Scores well on scandal points. Yeah, so we, 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 that's a positive for us when they do lots of dastardly deeds that we do actually give points. Okay, for that, so. okay. You see, I, I would regard having having your Archbishop of Canterbury <laughs> murdered <laughs> in his cathedral as yeah. not necessarily being a plus. <laughs> yeah. Someone perhaps whispering in his ear, "There's no such thing as uh, bad publicity." <laughs> Except as John Except, and Richard the Third demonstrate, yes. there yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, but John, we found, wasn't even bad enough. To be the worst king. He was even bad at being bad. Being bad. Oh, he was oh. just mediocre. So who was, your, oh. who was your worst king? Oh, I don't know. We've not actually done that. So it's something that we should do at some point. We didn't do a, the worst. But yeah, John would have been a... John must have been. I mean, I think... Henry VI, pretty useless as well, I think, as a less... Yeah, but, but, but not bad. bad. I mean, John just... is bad in both senses of the word. Mm. Mm. Whereas yeah. Henry VI is bad in one sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Who uh, who gets through then? You have those uh, that initial sixteen. Yes. So Elizabeth the first was against Edward the uh, first, and Elizabeth won that easily. Oh. Elizabeth. It was all the seconds. Uh, mm. Elizabeth the second against Henry the second, mm. and mm. Elizabeth the second won that. Mm. Henry the fifth against Henry the seventh. Henry the fifth won that. William the first against Knut. William won that. Edward the mm. third against Richard the first. Edward won that. Charles the second against Oliver Cromwell. Charles won that. Victoria against Athelstan. Athelstan won that. Henry VIII against George V. Henry won that. So that was the 16s. Now, you're going to ask me what the quarterfinals were, weren't you? (laughs) I'm ashamed to say that I can't actually remember. (laughs) So, yeah, so in the quarterfinals, who won? It was, um, I think, Elizabeth I won. I think Elizabeth II got through to the semis. I think Athelstan got through. And William the first got through. That's mm. right. Yeah. So it was it was Elizabeth the first, Elizabeth the second, William the first, which I was surprised by, and Athelstan. Yeah, because I wouldn't have thought he'd be that popular, William the Conqueror. I mean, he's obviously got name recognition. And I think he, I think he was lucky. I think he was lucky with the draw. Mm. I think I think he was against Knut, who I think lots of people didn't know very much about. Mm. And then I think he was against Henry the Eighth, um, and I think Henry. Just you know, I mean, just he's 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 well known, but he's not popular, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But I mean, you know, you'd think, well, why why is William popular? Um, <laughs> well, it's just it's just that it's more fun, isn't it, Batley? We, there's a whole section we have called Battliness where we, you know, they, that that uh, like we we're saying about Edward the Third, there's that just uh, standing with your sword aloft, held aloft moment that medieval particularly aspire to. William maybe has a bit of that. The Conqueror is pretty yeah, punchy it's name, a, isn't it? it? It's a very punchy, yeah, very punchy supercase. So he probably got through f- for that reason. Uh, Elizabeth, I think, we all thought was going to win. Mm. So that was no surprise. Elizabeth II, I, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I had to... Do, so BBC History magazine just did a, a thing on uh, greatest monarchs since 1066. Mm. So I chose her, not because I think, you know, she's kind of done amazing feats comparable to, to previous monarchs, but simply because the the prospectus for a monarch changes and evolves as time goes on. And relative to what the country is looking for from a monarch, mm. I think Elizabeth II's performance is actually, you know, mm. astonishing. I think she's kept the monarchy on the road 
in a period of absolutely kind of turbulent social cultural change. Um, so I think actually she kind of deserved that mm. semi-final place. But obviously, I mean, she's not Henry mm. II or, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages, you would judge a king by whether he defeats the French, basically. <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's, that's the measure. <laughs> but that's simply not the measure in the 21st yeah. century, sadly. <laughs> that's a great point, though. We had to, to that her role has been, or her best asset has been to evolve. I'd never thought of that. But, well, and also, the, you know, there's the famous uh, Beatles song about her, Her Majesty. She doesn't mm. have a lot to say. Mm. <laughs> and in a way, the fact she doesn't have a lot to say, I mean, she, she may do. I mean, that's the appeal of the crown, isn't it, as a drama, yeah. is the thought that actually behind the scenes she has loads to say, but that in public, it's mm. all, you know, have you come far? <laughs> that kind of stuff uh, you know, and that's the it's it's this kind of iron self-discipline yeah so by that measure i think elizabeth deserved her place and then of course we had we had athelstan who was very much the dark horse mm. um again i think uh <clears throat> who i, I because i uh, penguin i'm sure you've come across them penguin have done mm. this series of uh, monarchs of england um that again i mean we had i was asked originally to do alfred for that series and i said to the series editor you know, doesn't, doesn't doesn't count, and he accepted it. So I did Athelstan. Uh, so I was always rooting for Athelstan, uh, and mm. I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I didn't unduly kind of gerrymander <laughs> <laughs> the results. There wasn't any match fixing. It was all absolutely genuine because it was done on Twitter. It was the Twitter polls. Mm. So well, I wanted did... that when um, at the start when. Um... He had the draw and Alfred wasn't included. I was thinking, was there any extent to which you thought if Alfred isn't there, it makes Athelstan's chances just a little bit... Uh... No, I would have loved Alfred. I mean, I would have loved Alfred. I would have, of course. I mean, I think Alfred entirely merits being called the great. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt as to the, his stature. I mean, I think he was an astonishing figure uh, militarily, in terms of statecraft, uh, in terms of um, his sponsorship of learning, uh, and scholarship in terms of the way that he, uh, you know, found so many towns. Uh, I, I think everything about him was remarkable, but I don't think he's the King of England. Mm. Mm. And they did, it was good that the Penguin did um, go by your advice and not just ask somebody else to do Alfred. <laughs> no, I think, I, no, I think, I mean, I think they entirely accepted the point. Mm. Yeah. Because I, again, I said, well, if you, you know, if you're going to do Alfred, then why not offer? And the thought of, Wow. You know, having to commission a biography on offer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we know nothing about him, basically. Uh, yeah. It kind of, yeah, or Radwald or whoever. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, a language, language publishers, publishers understand. understand. Money. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Uh, so you had your final four, um, and then um, I think it was Elizabeth I and Athelstan that uh, made it to the grand final. Yeah. Uh, so what happened in the grand final? Well, amazingly, Athelstan won. And it kind of, the, the balance between them, it kind of, it, it, it widened and it narrowed. And it was always kind of, you know, well, it was a kind of Brexity. A 52 48 kind of margin <laughs> yeah. pretty much throughout um and and by the end athelstan had won and mm. it was it was remarkable and it was so remarkable that 
a, a journalist on the Times then wrote a piece about it, mm. you know, saying Athol mm. who, uh, <laughs> and then it got picked up. We got picked up on um, by the World at One on BBC News. So I went on with Tracy to to talk about our respective um, our respective teams, uh, and it was. You know, for a Twitter poll, it got quite mm. a lot of attention. <laughs> it certainly did. I think we were talking about it this end with our Rex Factor listeners. That wasn't there the case that there was a lot of uh, uh, Athelstan fans suddenly chiming in on our poll, Graham. Was that what you're saying? Like all of a sudden there was a, a surge for oh, well, Athelstan. Well, so we, um, for our 10th anniversary, we did um, um, a similar thing. We, we did all the monarchs, so we didn't just do it for our Rex Factor winners we did sort of every single one and we had we had four in the final so we had Elizabeth um Henry II which I think we were expecting Athelstan also got to the final and our controversial one was Richard III who knocked out <laughs> Alfred <laughs> <laughs> what I thought no, I thought he was going to win because, um, that's I think insane that's insane on what III, basis though I mean is it well, is this I just think, kind of coolness or I think it was glamour not to undermine Richard III's uh, credibility as a contender, but I think it was because the Richard III account on Twitter got involved. Ah, uh, okay. And I think that slightly outvote how mm. many voters we had versus how many they were bringing in, I think, just tipped to the balance. Very like there was, wasn't there was some kind of time person of the year vote and loads of supporters of some cleric in Turkey all piled in. <laughs> if he controversially <laughs> beat Nelson Mandela or something. Oh, my <laughs> word. So, so yeah. uh, yes. So, obviously, I mean, that's shameful. We, we, didn't have any, we didn't have any nonsense like that. That's what I meant. Sorry, Graham. You see, this is what Graham has to do, poor, poor chap. Yes, not <laughs> Athelstan at all, but Richard III. But we were experiencing a, yeah, a sudden flood towards the end, which knocked out Alfred as a shame. Yeah, bookmakers in Dubai, all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was interesting, though, because... Um, um, Athelstan came se- so Elizabeth won um, our poll, which is what we might have imagined. But Athelstan uh, came second, as I say. That's with all of the monarchs ultimately having been in there at some point. So it's interesting that um, yeah, in well, that's sort of, that's great to know. He's great to know. I mean, it does it, it does suggest that he is kind of cementing himself, yeah, perhaps in in uh, in people's understanding of British history, English history, uh, in a way that I think he certainly wasn't maybe a decade ago. Mm. Um, I think he's definitely, you know, his profile has definitely risen. I guess that's maybe Bernard Cornwall, his yeah. you know, Lost, mm. Last Kingdom series. Um, Mike Wood has, you know, always been a a resolute enthusiast for him. Um, I don't know, but it's um, it's mm. good to see. Mm. So why do you think he deserves his now official title as uh, England or Britain's greatest monarch? Well, I th- I think because he stands proxy for... Um, the three generations of which he's the third. So mm. he is very much his, his grandfather's grandson. Um, he is very conscious of following in Alfred's footsteps, of being obedient to Alfred's example. So um, I, I think there's that. And then you have um, Alfred's son, Edward, who rules as, as um, king of, of Wessex. And um, Alfred's daughter, Athelflaed, the Lady of the Mercians, who, uh, although never a queen has a kind of regal role in mercia and alfred is is the heir you know he's he's the son he's the daughter of, sorry he's the son of um of edward but he's essentially brought up by athelflaed so in a sense he is um you know he 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 owes the man he becomes to both of them as well and so he is in pole position when he becomes king in succession to his father Edward, to carry forward and complete the the kind of the the, the program of of conquest and of cultural and economic renewal that Alfred and Edward and Athelflaed had been committed to, and by doing that, and by laying foundations for this emergent kingdom of what will become England so solidly, uh, he is able to kind of serve as the midwife of this very very precocious kingdom i mean you know you'll know you've been through all the all the kings that athelstan conquers northumbria so he he said you know let's look at that literally the lands north of the humber um they, they slip away from his heir's grasp but they get reconquered very rapidly and athelstan's nephew edgar i mean is 
paramount as king, not just of, of the territory of what's now England, but of the whole of Britain. Uh, and essentially, that kind of the, the unitary state that becomes England is from that point on, um, you know, something pretty remarkable. It's it's something with a single monarchy, a single religion, a single coinage, um, to a degree, a single language. I mean, there are very kind of, you know, dialects, uh, Scandinavian languages are spoken as well, of course. But it's, as I say, it's a very, very precocious state. Uh, and it endures to this day. And I think that um, Athelstan, for that reason, absolutely deserves his his role. I mean, he's the only one of the, all those kings that we've been discussing who, you know, who is a state builder. And it was interesting. I was sort of I'm rereading your um, the the Penguin book and sort of reminding myself the um, the fact that he was Rex Totius Britannia. Britannia, yeah. Because I think obviously the Romans obviously go into Scotland but don't sort of complete that conquest. Edward the First is Hammer of the Scots, but dies with Robert the Bruce. Um, sort of on his way to restoring Scottish independence. Does Athel, can that, you see Athelstan in some ways as almost being the most powerful of a sort of British rulers in the sense of what he does against well, the Scots? Well, so uh, Athelstan is conscious of two previous um, groups of rulers who have conquered the whole of the island. Hmm. Um, the first of those is the giants. So the giants <laughs> who who lived in Britain before the coming of Brutus. Uh, the Trojan who escapes the sack of Troy and is the legendary founder, lands at Totnes, is the legendary founder of Britain. But the giants had ruled Britain before that. Uh, and then, of course, the Romans. Uh, and I, I think that um, although they're aware, the, the, the Anglo-Saxons are aware of Hadrian's Wall, um, they have a sense that the Romans, again, ruled the whole of the island, kind of slightly ahistorical, but they, they have that sense. And Athelstan is, positions himself in propaganda terms as the heirs of both of, of the giants and of the, and of the Romans, and he claims a primacy over the whole island. Now, the the key to kind of recognizing what he's doing is that at that point, England and Scotland do not exist, as they will subsequently will subsequently come to understand them. You know, England, the the the, the lands of the Angle uh, of the Anglo-Saxons. So, so people who speak a form of English, the Saxons and the Anglians, and Northumbrians are Anglians. So, but that but that Anglian kingdom reaches right the way up to the Firth of Forth. Um, yeah. And actually, the very first mention of England, so not in Latin, but in but but in English, is a reference to essentially Edinburgh. I mean, it's it's it's. It's describing. It's it's written by by someone in Scotland describing the lands on the south side of the Firth of Forth. Mm. So that's a reminder that um, you know we're not talking about Scotland. What you know there is a king of the Scots who Athelstan has a you know several run-ins with Constantine, um, but he again is is not ruling anything that approximates to, to the kingdom of Scotland as it exists now. Uh, there are also the Picts on the other side of of. Um, the great spine of mountains that run through the highlands uh, and the degree to which they are have become synonymous with the Scots is hugely, hugely debated by historians. Um, and then you've got the uh, the kingdom of the Strathclyde Britons. Um, it's kind of centred around what's now Glasgow, um, who, who is essentially Welsh-speaking. So it's much, much more of a tapestry. What clearly happens is that the Northumbrians, although... There is some hostility towards Athelstan, particularly in York, where the uh, the Archbishop of York uh, and various other Anglian noblemen, you know, they they're familiar with the Viking rulers by now. They're, they're not sure they want this alien southerner <laughs> coming up. But of course, you know, they 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 do speak the same language. They do have the same kind of cultural background. So in the long run, it's easier for Northumbria to be knitted into this emergent English state. It's the language barrier with the other kingdoms mm. and the, the difficulty of the terrain. So that's why, so a chunk of the the kingdom of the Strathclyde Britons, you know, so Cymru, Cumbria, there's a clue in the name. That 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 was formerly a part of this Strathclyde kingdom. That mm. becomes incorporated into England. Uh, the rest of it gets swallowed up by the king of the Scots and the Scots are, are, are Gaelic speaking. So uh, 
So it's a very, very complicated period, but you can kind of see the lineaments of what will become England, Scotland and Wales emerging out of the, the turbulence of this period. And it's incredible to think with Athelstan's sort of campaigns in Scotland, thinking when Alfred was sort of reduced to hiding in his swamp and mm. then a couple of generations later and you're just the whole island pretty much can be covered. Yeah, and there's there's a kind of very powerful I- illustration of how that is understood by Athelstan himself because um, when he goes up to uh, to invade Scotland, so, so Constantine has kind of thrown off his... Um, uh, fealty to Athelstan. And so Athelstan marches all the way from Winchester, kind of an incredible journey, right the way up into the Highlands, uh, smacks Constantine around and then goes back down. But on the way up, he he stops off um, at Chester Le Street. So Chester Le Street, uh, the name implies it was a Roman fort. And inside the Roman fort, there is a, a, a church in which the monks originally from Lindisfarne have brought the relics of St. Cuthbert, the great, great miracle working saint of the of the Northumbrians. Uh, Lindisfarne had notoriously been sacked by the Vikings, uh, and so the relics have ended up in this place. And Athelstan goes and and shows his respect to the saint, and there's a famous image of Athelstan. I mean, everyone who, who needs an image of Athelstan will recognise it, of him talking to the saint, presenting him with a book. And Cuthbert, of course, is the, the great Northumbrian saint, but he is also viewed with the utmost respect by the kings of Wessex. And there is a story that when Alfred was on Athelney, so it's not the famous burning the cake story. The story is, is that um, he is, uh, you know, his, his men are, are, are running short of food. Alfred himself only has enough supplies to last for a day. His men are all out trying to fish, but they can't get any, any anything. They, you know, their nets are empty. And a, a pilgrim comes wandering along, a kind of beggar, uh, and asks Alfred for food, and Alfred gives him the food, and it turns out that this pilgrim, this beggar, was in fact Saint Cuthbert. And from that point on, Alfred's men are able to get fish. You know, their nets are heavy with fish, and they have enough to eat. Um, and so that suggests that what Athelstan is doing is adopting Cuthbert, the Northumbrian saint, as a kind of national English saint. Hmm. Wow. He does deserve it. I mean, it's just it's just his PR. If only he had Holbein. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant PR. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that image of him with Cuthbert mm. is, is in itself. Oh, yeah. Mm. So he's like, it seems pretty much the whole sort of Wessex line. He's not that old when he dies, Athelstan. Do you think there's more that he could have achieved if he'd lived another sort of 10 to 15 years? Do you think he could have done more than he did achieve or would it have been a time to sort of sit back, drink the mead and hear some <laughs> skaldic poetry? Well, when he when he dies, uh, his you know the the, the West Saxon hold on the north crumbles pretty quickly. Um, had he lived another ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, probably that wouldn't have happened because he just won the great victory at Brunanburh, the famous mm. battle that you know nobody knows where it is, but it's a kind of crushing victory, uh, and and his name was fit to inspire terror, you know, a, a, across Britain and Ireland, um, and. I, I suspect that the nascent kingdom of England would have held together more firmly had he survived. But, you know, but he clearly was uh, being a king in that age was a tough, tough business. Uh, and I think, you know, he kind of basically dies of exhaustion. Everything oh, is on wow. his shoulders. Uh, and it's not just the, um, you know, the physical demands of uh, a peripatetic kingship, of um, the demands on him as a warrior king. It's also the kind of spiritual strain of knowing that at the day of judgment, Athelstan will have to answer to God for everything he's done as king. So there's, there's, there's an incredible burden of expectation on a king who is as devout as Athelstan clearly was. Uh, and I think the, the pressure of it just seems to have, and you know, he just seems to have, have died of exhaustion pretty much. Jeepers. Poor bloke. Yeah. Well, but he, you know, he did a. His name lives on. <laughs> yeah. Now, in addition to um, a penguin book on um, Athelstan, you've also did a uh, lady book. Uh, lady book. A lady <laughs> bird book. Well, it is a lady book. It is a lady book. It's the Lady of the Mercians book. <laughs> lady, bird, lady bird, lady book on the Lady of the Mercians, uh, Ethelflaed. Um, so you spoke a little bit about her earlier um, yeah. as Athelstan's aunt, but also sort of. Brings, uh, brings him up as well. Um, what 
what's her role? I think you described her as England's forgotten founder. Well, she's, she's England's founding mother. So if you think of, of Alfred Edward Athelstan as the founding fathers of England, Athelflaed is the founding mother. Um, and, you know, she's all the more remarkable, obviously, for not being a man. Mm. Um, she is um, married by Alfred to Athelred, who in the Bernard Cornwall uh, novels is, gets a very bad deal, I think. I mean, there's no evidence at all that he was a sneaky little <laughs> as he's shown in by Bernard Cornwall. Uh, he, he's the leading elderman. He's the leading nobleman in Mercia. And, you know, Mercia is kind of divided by um, between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons and, and Alfred in a kind of line running from the Mersey down to the Thames estuary. Um, Athelflaed marries Athelred they seem to have administered that block of territory that they ruled very effectively and well. Um, Athelred dies. He title had been Lord of the Mercians. Athelflaed becomes Lady of the Mercians and she rules, you know, effectively as, as the queen. And yeah. in Ireland, she is known as the, the queen of the Saxons. Mm. Um, and she's an incredibly impressive figure. Uh, she's, you know, she joins her brother in the, the, the great attack on the Vikings of the Dane law and of Eastern Mercia that sees um, by, by, by Edward's death uh, everywhere south of the Humber coming under uh, Anglo-Saxon rule. Um, but she's also, like her father, a great, a great patron of learning, a great patron of uh, scholarship, a great patron of the economy. Um, so my single most precious possession, and precious, I sound like Gollum, <laughs> it's it's a coin that was mi- it it has Edward's name on it, but it was minted by Athelflaed. It was minted mm. in Chester, and we know that because we get the money's name on it. So she's responsible for it, and it's stamped with a tower, uh, and this is modelled on a coin by Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor. And the tower represents either the tower of a church, symbolising her piety. Um, her commitment to uh, to civic uh, existence. She's refounded Chester, which had been a Roman fort, planted churches there, planted markets there. So it's expressive of that, you know. Or it's it's the great, you know, it's the tower of uh, of the battlements, illustrating her martial prowess. And probably it's both. I mean, probably it's designed to be both. And that kind of sums up her role. Uh, and in a sense. You know, we have we have no writings by her. Uh, we're dependent for the details of her life on a single version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, she seems to have been slightly written out of the story by her brother. But, you know, what we know about her is enough to say that, that she was a remarkable, remarkable figure who, you know, deserves to be commemorated as a very, very key figure in the history of England. And again, I think a bit like Athelstan, that she is becoming better known by people generally. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there is a, a kind of a grand swell of enthusiasm for her. Uh, and if you go to, to Tamworth, where she died, um, so that, you know, that was the capital of Mercia, her capital of Mercia. There, there are two great statues there. There's one, uh, of a famous one of her in the grounds of Tamworth Castle. Um, she's she's a, a holding her, a young boy who is the, the, the infant Athelstan. And then um, the, the roundabout outside the railway station, absolutely brilliant one of her looking completely kind of boudicca, very <laughs> ferocious, kind of great spear. Um, and I guess that, that those two statues very nicely sum up, you know, the, the twin sides of her, mm. uh, you know, of the, uh, the kind of the, the, the nurturing mother of her people and the, the, the terrifying warrior queen. She was, she was both. It's funny you mentioned boudicca because I was going to say, I wonder what, why it's now that people are sort of reading, or she's having more coming more into the public consciousness than, say, the Victorian era when everyone looked back to Elizabeth I or Boudicca a bit more. That would have been a perfect reference point to people struggling come to, to come to terms with the idea of a queen. Yeah, I don't know. Well, she wasn't a queen. Athelflaed wasn't uh, yeah, a queen. That's it. Um, so, so that may be it. Uh, I mean, she was. So you will find if you go to the um, the various places that she founded over the Midlands. Um, so she was called Athelflada. Uh, she she appears, you know, in that kind of that Victorian font that mm. you get, you know, the kind mm. of pre-Raphaelite font. She 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 appears in quite a lot of stained glass windows, quite a lot of kind of civic mm. friezes, that kind of thing. 
Um, I suppose the difference now is that she's she's more of a national than than a, a, a simply a, a Midlands figure. Mm. If she'd lived a bit longer, what might have happened? And particularly, like if she'd survived her brother Edward, because obviously she dies and then he just subsumes Mercia, and it seems like this perfect journey to create in England. But if she'd lived longer than him, would she have? happily seen Athelstan take it all over or might she have I think she would yes I think she would I think that's what she was grooming him to do yeah. certainly uh, one of the problems that Athelstan faces when he becomes king is is that even though he's Edward's eldest son he's seen by the uh, by many in Winchester as a kind of Mercian and so therefore mm. an alien so do you think her because initially she's which I think is the only time um Although my pre-Saxon knowledge isn't uh, so good, but I think the only time you have a mother-to-daughter succession in England, um, whereby Ethelfled's daughter becomes uh, the very lady of the Mercians. Yeah. Very fleetingly. <laughs> she gets James packed, off to, a, yeah. packed off to a nunnery in Wessex yeah. very, very quickly, yeah. But I, I'm just interested what Athelstan might have done then. Like, Could he have been king of all England and she's his, what would it be, cousin? Is still... Lady of the Mercians, who do you think he would have done the same as his father at some point and just yeah, he would absolutely have done yeah, <laughs> absolutely he would have done yeah. A difficult technical question for us because we didn't cover other than in Edward the Elder's episode we didn't cover her in our first series and then we've have done an episode on her in this series where we're doing the consorts and obviously she's technically not the consort of an English monarch but she sort of was a consort of a. Mercian ruler. Do you think we can justify including her in this series, or should she? Uh, well, I, I don't think you. Can, I don't think you. Can, not not as a consort. That's mm. that's not that's not the key to her stature. Mm. Um, I mean, she's her stature is due to being the sister and the daughter of of a king, um, and to being seen by people beyond the limits of Mercia as a queen. So she's seen mm. by. You know, I mentioned the Irish also by by very you know what in Wales she's referred to as a queen. So I think you could justify talking about her by saying, well, she is, you know, this is a period where um the precise definition of of kings and princes and queens and so on is is much more um much more up for grabs than it would be uh, subsequently. Mm. And so I think you could say, well, if she's seen as a queen by other people, yeah, we can include her. Uh, one last Saxon question I'd uh, like to ask, you know, and you actually mentioned him a little bit um, earlier. The most controversial decision that we've had in all the years of doing podcasting was when uh, Ali didn't give. Um, oh. Actually, I didn't. I, 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 we didn't introduce ourselves, did we? At the start, I just realised we just went straight in. I'm Graham. That's Ali. Sorry. <laughs> I guess <laughs> the other one of us didn't give uh, Edgar the Peaceful the uh, Rex Factor, which is our sort of award for those who are kind of the the star monarchs have that sort of great achievement or lasting legacy, etc. Um, would you be yay or nay? Oh, I'd be yay completely. I think he's a key <laughs> figure. I think Athelstan and, um, uh, and Edgar are the, the kind of the two towering uh, English kings. Mm. Um, and the fact that, that England survives to be taken over first by the Danes and then by the Normans is largely, I mean, obviously due to Athelstan, but also due to Edgar and the, the, the Anglo-Saxon monarchy, it's, it's wealth, it's sophistication, um, the potential that it offers to, you know, not just Anglo-Saxon Kings, but to Danish and Norman Kings as well to extract vast amounts of money out of its tax base. Um, this is hugely due to Edgar, mm. who, of course, you know, you'll know is called peaceable, not because he was a hippie, <laughs> but because he killed anyone who broke the peace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the evidence is certainly mounting up, and I can't remember why I didn't like him anymore, but I'll take, I'll take it on. <laughs> He's really cool. I mean, you know, crowned in Bath. Yeah. You know, gets all gets all, everybody else to row him up the D. I mean, it's yeah. tremendous. It just hangs anyone at the drop of a hat. Well, that was the trouble because we gave one of the people in that boat, one of the Scottish kings, I can't remember who it was, the Rex Factor. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, I didn't give it to Edgar, who was yeah, being very poor. Very poor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, beginning. I mean, I have said, I have done my apologies. You did an I, official apology. I was video. forced to uh, row Graham around on a lake. Excellent, yeah. excellent. That's the only yeah. only punishment. That <laughs> With him done. dressed as Edgar. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think it was awesome to see that. 
I think it was also that Ali was quite fed up with hearing all about uh, the uh, Archbishop Dunstan by that point as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's just... It just brings the whole thing down as soon as you bring Dunstan in. Really? <laughs> oh. But the devil, the tongs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just... Again, he's. I'm sure he's got an effective PR machine, but <laughs> definitely. Just, just whenever, um, whenever something fun seems to happen, up pops his cheeky little face, brings an end to it all, and then we. All, I, 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 I'm getting a definite sense that this is an Archbishop of Canterbury phobic podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> you know, I uh, poor old praise to Henry. Yeah, you need to get Justin Welby on. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. It is true. Well, as soon as Graham starts to mention church reforms, I, I mean, there is a certain amount of glazing that comes over. Him, so. Yeah, but you can't take it out on the you know, poor old Dunstan. <laughs> I mean, it's his job. I've got. I'm looking at a picture of him now, kneeling at the feet of Christ that you gave me, Graham, and it still annoys me. Oh yeah, Just every year I give Ali a, a Dunstan thing present on the St Dunstan's Day. I so approve of this. <laughs> It's appalling. At one time, Graham was feeding my cat and secreted a little Dunstan, uh, like four foot, a four foot, four, four inch high figure, and I had no idea into how the it house, got there. Not the cat. Into the house. Into the oh, house. not. I was going to say into the cat food. It's kind of like those cereals where you get, you know, yeah, yeah, the cat in the model of Saint Dunstan. Yeah, yeah. But, be so, quite. I mean, that would be quite. One of the specialists, I think. Wouldn't that would, it? Yeah, that would have been a hell of an effort. But Anglo-Saxon archbishops, yeah. you know, in, mm. in cereal packets or four cat cats. food sachets yeah. or... <laughs> I can name three or four of our podcast listeners who have cats and are fans of Dunstan that would like that. So <laughs> I had no idea Dunstan was such a quid. thing here. That's really good to know. <laughs> oh, it's everywhere. I'll end us the fact that he came back a little bit in the Scottish series because of that rowing incident, so we got to talk about him again, and now we're doing the consort, so he popped up mm. again there, obviously. So he just uh, he can never get away from Dunstan for too long. The big man. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking to us all about that. has been uh, Absolute been pleasure. Really thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, how can people find you on uh, the interweb? Uh, on Twitter, at Holland underscore Tom. Uh, and our podcast, The Rest is History, available from all streaming platforms. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really good. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Tom. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Uh, so that was Tom Holland on the English Monarchs, particularly Athelstan and also Ethelfled. Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactorPodcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. Well, that was amazing, wasn't it? Genuine question, who is it we're doing again? You said at the start, what's his, what's his Tom thing? Tom Holland. No, no, the, the people that oh, he's... Oh, uh, so he's done little books on Athelstan and Ethelfled. But, the Penguin uh, ones. Penguin one on Athelstan, Ladybird one on Ethelfled. <laughs> Appropriate. Hmm. Um, she's a woman, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed those. You gave me one on Edward, or I saw one on Edward. Oh yes, yes, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we went on live tour, I've got the Edward, uh, the Edward Panko one. Yeah. Well, that was written by somebody else, but if you assume that it's of the same <laughs> quality, then that's a glowing review for Tom to take home. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? You didn't even, it's just there was a book about Edward. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's That's... tangentially relevant. Mm. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Uh, and we have some Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Mm. Elaine Varley, Mimi Hunter, Anthony Lawless... Julie Matloff-Kennedy, Mackenzie Walton, Lindsay Sturge, Mary Calloway, Stephen Atkins, Anne Johnson, Jay Sprigg, Brittany Menton, Jennifer Palmer, Sean Colbuth, Sarah G, Bob Potter, Colin Smith, Jed Arnold, Kylene Grell, Jermaine Fairclough, and man... <laughs> I'm getting more and more toasty here. Amanda <laughs> Hendrickson. Amanda Hendrickson. <laughs> Tina Johnston. Kelsey Ingram, Stuart Morelli, Natalie Cole, and Jennifer Pruitt. There's quite a few uh, familiar um, names there. Well, Kingram, many will already have not. been uh, privy councillors, but it's uh, we're going sort of back to the beginning, really, because of Patreon. Mm. Mm. Uh, but yes, thank you to all of those. I was I was building to the finale too many lines early, and thus was doing my weird intonations. 
Oh, I like it. I like, I like it when they're longer and longer. And then in the end, you're saying... <laughs> Jermaine Fairclough. <laughs> uh, so that's all from us uh, today. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview. As we said, you can follow Tom Holland on Twitter, where he is at Holland underscore Tom. And uh, the Rest is History podcast is at The Rest History. Uh, that's all from us today. See you next time. Cheerio. Oh, thank God it was recording. Yep, yep, yep. Stop.